0: Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 6, 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Emily. Well, as I mentioned, we've been looking uh, for quite some time at the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it's a sermon that Jesus gave uh, early in the Gospels. You can read it. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's in uh, a couple places. Actually, Matthew and Luke share some material from this. But Matthew is where we're looking. It's the first Gospel, the first book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew was written by uh, Matthew, who was a a tax collector, actually. And uh, he started following Jesus. And it's interesting, as you read this sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, you read all these things. You can imagine what some of these hearers would think. And and we're in a portion where we've really camped out for a little bit on prayer. Kind of this famous passage that many of you, even if if you're coming back into the church or maybe uh, you've kind of been disassociated with church for quite some time, uh, may know the Lord's prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven, you saw the... The passage up there. I mean, this is where we're kind of looking at. And last week, David Filson, who um, is uh, one of the pastors on SAF, was able to preach here. It was a beautiful, beautiful sermon on God as our Father. What does it mean to go to Him as our Father and, and, and be received and loved and cared for? And this week, I, as we shift and look at the same passage, I, I want to talk about God as our King. Hallowed be thy name. and, And look not just at the theology of God as holy, but the practical nature. Jesus is actually giving us a practical outline on prayer. Very interesting. He's giving us a way to pray. The disciples actually asked him, the disciples, people who would have grown, most of which grew up Jewish and would have known prayer in some sense, actually asked Jesus, Can you help us pray? Isn't that a question that you and I ask often? How in the world do I pray? Uh, Even if you may pray, a lot of times you may not know the words. What what do I say? Jesus actually gives them an outline of prayer. And I'm so grateful for for them and for us. It's not necessarily something we're supposed to just recite over and over. It's actually a model we're supposed to take up and look at. It's something really to, to take in. C.S. Lewis uh, was talking about what it means to kind of follow Jesus. And in his real, uh, you know, classic book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about him uh, becoming a Christian out of atheism and learning what it means to be near God and grow into that. He talked about we come to God like children, that we need to learn about following and practically living in, in in. Christ by living as children. And he talked about it like this. He said there are two kinds of pretending, kind of children taking up, pretending and doing, living in kind of a fun pretend world, putting on clothes, trying on things. And this is how he talks about it. There's two kinds of pretending. There's a bad kind of pretending where pretense is there instead of the real thing, but there's also a good kind where pretense leads up to the real thing. That's why children's games are so important. They are always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they're hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that with pretense of being grown-ups helps them to grow up in earnest. The Lord's Prayer is about us actually taking this on. It's actually trying, we're not just supposed to recite it, we're actually supposed to live in it. it. It's something we're supposed to be a part of. I want to make a reference to one of those uh, movies. This may date me a little bit, but uh, the great theologian Zoolander. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that movie, but there's a scene in the movie where um, Ben Stiller is talking to his enemy, and his enemy's trying to woo him. Uh, and in Ben Stiller's character is not real sharp, and so to try and get him to be on his side and to get him out of the way, so. Uh, Will Ferrell, who's the, who the enemy, can, can take care of him. He builds this model of this, this, uh, this, <laughs> this center for kids who can't read good or do other things good either. And he says, um, I'm going to build this for you. I want to make this for you. And you see him kind of walk around it and look at it. And he says, what is this, a school for ants? No one can live in this. Well, it's a model, right? No one can live in that. The, the point of this passage is that it's a model. It's a model not for us to live in it. It's to try on. It's to learn from Jesus to walk through it, okay? And that's where we're going with this this morning. It's to learn first what is God's character so that we can learn how our character is to be. So it's going to be a pretty practical look this morning at the Lord's Prayer as we take on and walk in those clothes as children. So we're going to look at this in three parts. We're going to look at God's holiness, how set, set apart he is, his kingdom, his rule, his authority, and also his desires. And I think this is really interesting. Think about this for one second before we move on, that as we talk about God's being set up, God being set apart and his rule and authority and his desires. Are those not things in our culture that we exalt? Our desires, our authority, our being set apart, our being significant. Think about God giving us this prayer, Jesus lining this up because in order for us to understand those massive themes in our world today, this is how we're supposed to understand them. I think it's really amazing. First, look at this. When he begins the prayer, he says, our Father in heaven. That's the prologue. But then he goes right into the body of the prayer, which is, number one, hallowed be their name, his holiness. Hallowed means being set apart. It means holy. It it, it means perfect. It means that when we talk to God, he is that holy, He is that set apart. Uh, There's a great book that was written by Tim Keller, who's a a pastor in New York City. He wrote on, it's just called Prayer. And what he talks about there is is how it's easy for us to think of prayer as this meditation that we go into ourselves. I mentioned this when we talked about confession, that it's easy for us to actually think of prayer as kind of this way of us uh, just reflecting, uh, self-speak. But what prayer is, is actually entering into the presence of someone who is so holy and so different, so set apart from us. Because if we don't have prayer in that way, it does become just a self-speak, almost like a journaling to self rather than a conversation with someone who's other. And that's what God wants us to do. Yes, he is Father, but let's not forget he is our Father with character, and his character is holy. It is set apart. Much different than ours. But here's the interesting thing. When he would talk about holiness, and I mentioned this as well, when he would say, hallowed be your name to the disciple, when they came up on that mountainside and they listened to Jesus talk about prayer, they would have said, yes, he's holy. The Father, our Father, is the part that they would be like, I don't, can I say our Father to God? See, our culture, it's the reverse, right? We often struggle with the holiness of God. How how can he be that holy? I like the father part. I don't want the holy part. But let me encourage you, without his holiness, our worship, our life, the way that we want to be changed and follow Jesus in intimacy wouldn't occur at all. Without God being holy, intimacy can't happen either, or closeness to him. There was an old German theologian named Rudolf Otto. What a great name, Rudolf Otto, just kind of... German as it is. And he wrote a, a, a very dense thing on what's called um, the awe and the numinal, which is being awe inspired by those things that just overwhelm us. That coming into the presence of someone who is way greater than us, what is what happens? You know, we live in Nashville, I'll give you a quick illustration before I kind of give you where he was going with it. But think about this. When we come into the presence in, uh, of, of, of a celebrity, right, oftentimes you get that feeling. And even here in Nashville, it's kind of funny. Nashville is known for being cool when you see people that are celebrities, right? Uh, when you see them, you don't bother, you don't talk, you just kind of like, oh, yeah, hey, you know? <laughs> but but it, what's funny about that in, in our culture in Nashville is that we're still inside going, Gosh, I can't believe I'm next to so and so. I can't believe there's that. But we're supposed to act very calm and cool because when you move to Nashville, that's what you do, right? Uh, but that that really is not welcome to Na- if you don't know that yet. That is Nashville. So if you see uh, celebrities out on the street, that's how you're supposed to act. That's our culture. Okay. Uh, but but you know, in in our heart of hearts, it's wow. It's that that presence. Now ma- magnify that over and over in the passages you see in the Bible. When people come in contact with God, there is this overwhelming sense of both awe, wonder and attraction. It's both. It's not just, oh, I'm sinful, but there's this wanting to be closer. It's, it's so fascinating. C.S. Lewis put it in this way. He said, uh, if, if I was to say, there's a tiger in the balcony right now, many of you would say... Okay, there's a tiger in the balcony, whatever. But if, if I was to say there's a ghost in the balcony, it takes a different form. It takes a different shape. It takes a, whoa, there are ghosts in the balcony? Wait, what? There's a little bit of, what's going on? It's like those horror movies you always watch and the people are always, why do they always open the door? You go, don't open the, why, don't go in. Why would you do that? No one wants, and you're screaming at the screen? That's why they're doing that. Because we want to, there's something about it God is that holy. Listen to what Rudolf Otto used some descriptors of this. Listen, he said, first, there's stupor, a blank wonder and astonishment. Next, there's the shuddering. We're shaken to our core. We're held speechless. Third, there's a creature consciousness, an awareness of self. We know these things very well. And finally, he says, there's a sense of unworthiness and a need for covering. Coming in contact with the holy does that. It causes us to feel our creature, creatureliness, and that's not all bad. God wants us to know our limitations and dependency. He's not holy because we're supposed to be just, ugh, just squashed. He's holy to bring us into it. He's near. There's, a, there's a, a, an awe there. I've been reading, uh, actually listening to... Um, and I'd really encourage you to do this. In the back, by the way, we have a, a read through the Bible in a year kind of thing. And, and I've actually been listening to it on my phone. And it's so interesting because in this time, that's what they would do. They would read things and you'd listen. You wouldn't read it. They didn't have the manuscripts as much. And so I've been reading or listening to Leviticus. Now, many of you are like, okay, yeah, you're, you're the pastor guy, you're gonna read Leviticus. But I, I really encourage you to do this. It's fascinating when you, when you listen to books of the Bible, you hear themes. Leviticus is an Old Testament book, one of the first books in the Bible, and it's all about laws. It's just a bunch of laws. But what's fascinating about it is over and over you hear this theme, this connector of holiness to law, holiness to law. And so most of us, when we think of it, it it is that. But the thing that Leviticus does is it always drives it back to a character. It says, the law is not just for you, to do good. It's actually showing you, it's painting a portrait, a water, wider mosaic of God himself. It's saying for you to have relationship, to be close to him, know what he's really like. And God is giving us law to say, I want you to take this on and take my character on. Be with me, be like me, learn me. See, it's not a bad thing. God is holy. He's holy other. And we're called, even in the New Testament, to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. That we're to take this character on. It's to drive us to him in in life, to live distinct. So when we're praying, hallowed be thy name, we're not just saying, oh, you're holy. Thank you. You have a great... We're actually supposed to take on... We're to see his holy character and take on his holy character and live in it. It's an incredible model. And to study even the laws that we may not even use, none of us have oxen, maybe a couple of you do, I don't know. But if you have law here, to, un- to understand, to even take it in and go, how holy is my God? How perfect is he? And isn't it a holy God we need to live and to work in the places where we see unholiness? Don't you want? Now, as much as you and I live in shame and fear of being found out for our unholiness, it is only a holy God who says, I want to enter into those o- unholy places as holy, This is why Jesus comes in contact with all of our sin and yet never sins. We have to have a God who can manipulate sin sinlessly in order for us to have intimacy with him. Hallowed be thy name but also not just his holiness and being set apart, but his kingdom come, his rule, his authority. Authority is the question. I would say of all the themes, maybe of these three, this is one that really runs deep. <laughs> we all have authority issues. We all struggle, right? It's a massive part of us to want our own rights. I mean, this is what, who we are as Americans. This is who we are as individualists. We, we herald our own rights. So even when it talks about kingdom, right? It, it may be a little unfamiliar to us. It should be. We're a kingdom who actually, we're, we're a, a, a nation who threw, threw off a kingdom to become a nation. But what he's saying is, how do we pray for God's rule to not only come into our lives now, to, to have authority, his rule here now and to come, that we're praying for Jesus to come back and set his reign there's a, a, a movie that I love so much, it's an older movie, it's called The King's Speech. It's based on a true story of, of King George VI, and he had a massive speech impediment. If you haven't seen this movie, please see it. It's one of the most beautiful and redemptive movies, I think, of that, uh, that year. I can't remember, was it was several years ago. And it talks about his journey as a king who had, such, he had to come into power, um, not even by his own, but came in and had a massive speech impediment and was during a huge crisis uh, of, of uh, war and for England and, and, and to lead his people and to have that and to be able to speak. This is long before you could tweet or any of those things. He had to, all it was, speech mattered. It was powerful. It was what people held on to. And there's a moment when he becomes king, king And his daughters, who are so used to being a part of his life, are running to him right after the coronation. And his youngest runs to him, and all of a sudden, his oldest daughter kind of holds her back a second and says, "You must curtsy. And she curtsies first before she can run in his arms, and then runs and jumps in his arms. (laughs) She says, your majesty, and then hops right in his arms for a hug. It's really an interesting scene because for us, we're not used to that kind of thing. We don't have people in our lives that probably see us in such a manner. But God is holding both. There's something about that scene that is showing us what does it mean to be king. God is both. In that scene, the king, King George VI, is, is holding both. He is both the authority and his daughter's king as well as father. She can be embraced by him, but also must kneel before him. What a fascinating deal. We don't have that kind of mentality in our lives, but this is what God is. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're talking to a God who says, we begin the prayer by our Father. We get to be in his arms, but we also need to bend the knee. We need to say to ourselves, if he really is king, how many? How am I trying to build my own kingdom? How are my rights, my views, my philosophies trying to be held up? This kingship, here's what's interesting about it. Jesus, Jesus himself, when he was actually physically on this earth walking, because of his power was all the time the people, disciples even, were saying, take up the crown, become king. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But isn't it of us to try and make our kingdom of this world? That's why we have to pray this prayer. This is where Jesus was coming from. He's saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He said, thy kingdom come. We're actually saying to God, will your kingdom supersede mine? Talk about a humbling thing. Does that not strike you deeply? I don't know if if you talk about this much, if you come in circles of prayer, and many of you may be going, I just don't pray at all because it's such a hard thing for me. But one of the hardest things to actually pray is to ask God to humble you because he'll do it. And one of the hardest things here is to actually pray for God's kingdom when you know you don't really want his kingdom to be established. You're like, God, that's fine. I want you to be in charge. But as long as it doesn't supersede where I'm in charge, maybe we can have two kingdoms working together. Jesus is saying no. And even by his life, the one who could feed 5,000 people, the one who is raising people to life, healing people, even himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to grasp. He put himself humbly in the form of a servant, made himself nothing, and yet he was the one who held all power. All power. So much so that even when they came to arrest him, this is is an amazing passage. In John, another gospel that was written, it talks about when they came to arrest Jesus right before they took him to the trial, that he spoke in every Every soldier who came to arrest him, even the language, it says it was like a mighty wind from him fell literally down on the ground. That they fell before him. And yet he pulled no sword out. He did not call anyone down to destroy them. He went willingly to the cross to take that up. That was his kingdom, that's his authority. Shouldn't we see that when we're praying their kingdom come, that this is what we're praying about? I remember um, driving with one of my, my best friends from college and, uh, and high school, actually. It was spring break of our, of our uh, junior year, and we decided we were going to do a long road trip. And one of those stops was in Memphis, and we decided we wanted to go lay flowers on Elvis' grave, right? That was what we wanted to do. That was one of the things we wanted to do. We wanted to go see Graceland, lay flowers on his grave, and just kind of see what it was like. And we'd heard all about it. So we drive over the bridge, we get there, we uh, get the tickets, we walk in. I don't know if you've done this before. But you walk in and we, we went down into the famous jungle room, which that is a fascinating place. There's like carpet on the walls and stuff or whatever. It's, it's, it's wild looking. It is a jungle room. So my friend at the time uh, thinks, you know, I, I think I've got an idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow. In here. So he takes a knee in the jungle room like he's showing reverence. And a woman comes up behind him, and I'm not next to him, and puts her hand on his shoulder and is just kind of comforting him. And he kind of looks up at me like, and I just kind of walked away. I just kind of let him, let him be there in the moment. It was like, uh, what do I do now? I mean, it, it was interesting because she's, the woman was like, yeah, he's, I he's, know, yeah, the king, man, the king. We love the king. And, and he didn't know what to do. But, but I find ourselves to be in this sort of space when we pray about God's kingdom. Because we acknowledge it. We know there is some sort of a kingdom. We know Jesus claims his king. But how much do we really irreverently pray this? Honestly, how much do we claim our authority and, and, and yet we pray this prayer often instead of asking God, taking inventory of what's really going on in you and saying, God, I really, I mean, we prayed this a minute ago. I really want to make myself someone. I really want my rights and authority Will you please come show me that your authority is better? Are we willing to do that? That's what Jesus is is, is setting up here for us. He's saying that we must have his authority. His authority is good. I don't think we realize how good it is, how real it is, how effectual it is in our life. That his authority is real and true. True. And I think for some of us, we think, no, his kingship, some days I see it, some days I don't. I heard this analogy. It's a beautiful one. You know, many of us are going to the beach soon. And you know, when you sit on the beach, you notice the tide come and go. And that's often what God's kingdom feels like. It feels as though, well, sometimes he's in charge and sometimes he's not. But one thing we don't realize when we're sitting there, right, is that as the sun goes down and the moon is coming up, the tide is always coming in. God's kingdom is always advancing. There is none of us who can thwart it. Praying for his kingdom isn't us acknowledging the fact, okay, God, you can be on the throne and come forward. It's actually aligning ourselves with a king who's always advancing. There is nothing who can thwart this king. And it's not just about his power and his heralding it over you. It's about his goodness. It's about transforming a world that is broken and, and being destroyed and praying even that he would come back and renew it and change it and make it right. When we're praying for his kingdom come. Because that's the last thing that we're praying is when we say, your kingdom come and it's tied right into this, your will be done. The third part of this body. It's his will his, are his desires, his purposes, that your will would be done. That you would make my life more like yours. You know, when we talk about God's will, I, was, I had to sit... In a panel, I've mentioned this before, but it was really interesting. But I had to sit in a panel uh, about a year ago with um, a, a, a rabbi at a synagogue with a rabbi and a woman who was uh, Muslim, and we were interviewed in front of this synagogue after we watched. Uh, it was a National Geographic type thing. It was called, you know, uh, God, knowing God, right? Who he is. And uh, it was Morgan Freeman, and it was just talking about all the world religions and all these things. And, and literally, I thought they were going to ask us, okay, what would you think of the film? Those kind of things. This guy turns and looks at us, and I have the microphone, and he says, hey, what's God's will? And I'm like, what? Can you just tell us, uh, what does it mean to follow God's will? What's God's will for your life? And I thought, well, it's not a bad question. That's just huge. It was almost like one of those, uh, and I, of course, they let me be stuck with the mic, you know. And it was so humbling to think that, but they, that is our question, isn't it? I mean, when we ask the question, your will be done, okay, how would be your name. Maybe we can swallow the fact his name is holy. Maybe, maybe we can say your kingdom come because we can, we can, we can kind of adhere to that. But when we talk about God's will, his desires versus mine, are we willing to shape our desires to his? That's what God's, your will be done. What God's will isn't, it isn't determinism. It isn't this, What we're robots. Our choices really matter, right? They do have effect. God isn't just this uh, God who's wound us up like robots, nor is it like deism, which is a popular uh, religion even today a deism that says that God is kind of distant and remote. He's kind of set us in motion and we can just live according to what is here and yet he's distant. He's near and intimate. The Bible says quite opposite of that. And nor is it a blank canvas of fate or chance that he is with us. It's it's, it's not that. He's not keeping us guessing. What God's will is is what Deuteronomy 29.29, a book of the Bible says when it says, this verse, one of the greatest verses is so encouraging, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the, the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. That there's a secret will and a revealed will. That, that when the question is, how do you know you're following the will of God? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes and yes, right? One is that God's will, his desires are always going forward. His secret will. The ancients knew that. Even before the New Testament was even thought of, it was a part of that. It was revealed. And it was also his revealed will is what God has given us in his word. It's for our children and those afters, as it says, in his word. And and, and there's a, a, a catechism that puts it beautifully. It says, when we pray, we need to pray for things agreeable to his will. It is that we take our will, our desires, our longings, our authority, and we bring it before God and we say, God, shape mine to yours. Because his desires are beautiful. Isn't this why we're going full circle? Why do we have the law? The law shows God's desires, it shows his perfection. It shows his, his kindness, his power, his mercy, his justice. All the things that we long for, his desires in the law, it's for us to see it. And yet it is lived out in a person of Christ. In that flesh and blood. It's about his will being, bringing our will to his. It's what theologians have said. Prayer isn't about us saying, God, can you hear my desires and just make them yours? That's what we typically want. God, I have all these desires, make them come true. But how do we know our desires are right? What compass do we use to make sure they're, they're correct? I want to refer to C.S. Lewis again because he had so much to say about this topic, and particularly this when he wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. It was a way of talking about how demons and Satan attack humans. And when they talk about prayer, listen to what they talk about. This is really insightful. He said, whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, that is, the devil's talking about the enemy as God, Whenever they are attending, they being us, attending to the enemy himself, that's God, we are defeated, but there are ways of preventing them from doing so. Listen to this. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him toward themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings, thereby the action of their wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they're doing. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing their desired feeling. In other words, think about genius C.S. Lewis is getting at in our prayers. How often do we come to God to say, this is my desire, I'm going to live out of my desire instead of asking God to shape it? It's that our feelings run us. It's that we long to have everything we have happen, and yet how do we know that's what's best for us? That's what really transforms our character. God is saying, it has to be more. We're about to sing a song in a minute, right after this, for communion. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. And that was a really hard song for me to sing, and I'll tell you why. Because the person who wrote that song, Horatio Spafford, wrote that song out of incredible tragedy. When he wrote that song, his uh, family was actually on a boat coming back from... he uh, He was a Chicago lawyer, actually. So you would think a guy who had kind of a lot of his desires met. But when his sorrows, like a sea billows roll, his family was coming back uh, <clears throat> on a, and, uh, from England, and the boat sank. It actually uh, ran aground and sank. And there was a, a, a 226 people, it said, that, that lost their lives. And right after, nine days later, Spafford's wife wrote him and said two words, saved alone. He lost his children. Later on, he would take another boat and cross the area where his children, it says, would be who knows how deep down, as he grieved, as he cried. And he would pin this hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Think about this. We sing that hymn often and think that when we sing that as Christians, we should sing It is well with my soul, with a cold. It is well. As if we should rise above anything going on in our lives. I want you to know that when Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn, he wrote it with great tragedy. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot God has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How in the world could a man write a hymn after losing his children like that? Many of us in this room, when prayer is real, how often do we actually engage our hearts of reality in that? Think think about that. He is pinning the hymn of his heart. And yet he's saying, your will be done. How do we do that? We can't do that if it's simply the fact that we have losses and maybe we're just supposed to rise above. Christianity isn't about that. Christianity is about the fact that we have a Savior who goes and enters into those sorrows. Horatio Spafford knew that his grief would be all his life. It would be a part of his whole story. And yet, how would he keep going? It can't be because we pray a prayer and say, hallowed be in our name, kingdom come, your will be done. Do we enter into this? Doesn't it really mean we have to put this on like children? We have to engage in this more than just a repetition, more than just what it says of babbling words. It has to be real. Don't we need a God who is holy, who is king, who can actually get his hands into this world and change it because there is brokenness all around. There is loss everywhere we look. Inside and out. Don't our prayers need to engage the character of a God who this matters? You know, when we come to this table, that is what we're doing. We're engaging a God who says this matters. We're engaging a God who says that this table is about someone who doesn't just say, it is well with my soul and blindly goes forward. When Jesus went to the cross... He prayed, he was in a garden and he prayed and and the things that he prayed were not serene it is well with my soul. It was, Lord, if you can do any other way of saving these people, will you save them? That is what he prayed. And do you know what he he came back to? He came back to saying these words, not my will, but thy will be done. Because the only way to turn back death itself, grief, the heartache, the only way we actually have hope in engaging this God in this world, in prayer and going before him and praying our real self, How be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and in gut-wrenching terror and grief and hope and joy, all of it together is if we know we have a God who's done it. Jesus has done it. If he didn't say, thy will be done, we wouldn't be in this room. We wouldn't have hope in the midst of every grief that you have, that I have. The darkness of our soul. Praise God, praise Jesus, that he said, thy will be done, because we can come to a table, the king's table. It's his table, it's not mine. It's Jesus, the king, who sits on the throne now and yet invites you to this table no matter how dark your soul is. He says, this table's for you. If you're here this morning and you would say, my soul is dark, but I trust that I have a king on the throne. My prayers don't put him on the throne. I want to pray to him because he is that authority. I need that authority, whether it's in joy or grief or wherever it may be. This table's for you. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're, you're still kind of going, I don't know if I, I can really trust this God. I don't, know if, I don't know if Jesus can really do that in me. I, I encourage you to, to stay in your seat or come forward and fold your hands and receive prayer. But contemplate that. Contemplate the power of what he's done here. In his body and blood, he's shown, he's proving the fact that he enters into that reality of thy will be done, even in, in his own prayers. With that, I want us to um, actually read together. So let's stand together, if you will.